All right, it's death lesson number six, the resurrection of the dead part two, and that subtitle is called the New Testament Doctrine. As we've been looking at all of this, I never would have thought I could take seven, eight, nine. It's going to be nine lessons to discuss death, but uh, I don't know. It's what everything's marching towards, and then a new heaven and a new earth, and there's a lot to discuss concerning it. We know that the Bible says in Hebrews that Jesus Christ came to deliver those who all their lifetime were afraid of death. Can you imagine living, but your whole life that you're alive, you're terrified of dying? So that's really not much of a life at all. And so the Bible has a lot to say on death, as we've seen very clearly in five lessons so far. So this lesson in lesson seven will kind of wrap up the resurrection of the dead, but I really believe I could probably write five or six lessons alone on the resurrection of the dead, and I may have to come back and do that at a future date. So let's look at this, the New Testament doctrine. Last week we looked at, we introduced the resurrection of the dead as a doctrine, and we saw about seven or eight Old Testament scriptures that thoroughly help establish this key doctrine that Jesus Christ preached, that the Pharisees preached. It's one of the few things Jesus and the Pharisees were in agreement on. So we saw how it was established in the Old Testament, and now we're looking at it from the New Testament perspective. So let's look at our lesson. We have seen that the Old Testament prophets laid the foundation for our doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. It's abundantly evident Jesus Christ believed in and preached the resurrection of the dead. Now I would have to ask you, if Jesus Christ preached it everywhere he went, and if his disciples were always making references to it, why don't we hear much teaching on it? It's a good question for me because I've never taught on it before. Uh, that's one thing about the Bible. We just don't know all there is to know. Never say that you've learned all there is to learn about the Bible because in saying so, you would really prove how ignorant you are. Jesus Christ preached the resurrection of the dead, ultimately demonstrating that faith and setting the divine precedent by his own resurrection. He believed in it so much, he raised himself from the dead. Because doctrine is not what you believe, it's what you do. Amen. Amen. So our first little section here is we want to look at Christ's resurrection, which is both the first fruits and the pattern of ours. And we're going to see some things that we probably hadn't um, occurred to us or we hadn't considered. So Acts 4, 1 and 2. And as they spake unto the, pre the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Of course, this is Peter and John preaching. Being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, they're not preaching Jesus raised from the dead, but through the resurrection of Jesus, this is their foundation to preach this continued doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. And that upset the Pharisees and the, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees specifically, as we saw last week, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, which were your two biggest religious sects, and you had the Herodians as well, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees were always butting heads over the spirit realm and the resurrection because the Sadducees don't believe in a spirit realm. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in spirits. They don't believe in a resurrection. And the Pharisees held to both. So here we see the Sadducees are getting irritated because Peter and John are preaching from Jesus and at his resurrection, the continued doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. So we, we forget, you know, they're arrested, they're threatened. That's all because they're preaching the resurrection. Not of Jesus alone, but also of our coming resurrection. Again, we don't cover this because in our scientific minds, if as long as we can leave God up in the cosmos, it's all future tense, and we don't realize that there's a supernatural event coming called the resurrection of the dead. And as I said, introducing this topic, it is a little spooky to be able to say in 2019, 
I believe that when I die, my body will be put in the ground or cremated. And when the Lord comes back, he's going to take those components and give me a brand new body, the likes of which you've never seen and never will because you're a pagan. Wait, I thought you have a degree in science. I do. I still believe in a resurrection of the dead. I think this is a, a, a doctrine or a topic we don't want to teach on because it is a little spooky. But if God was confirming even that doctrine of science following, we ought to get back to it and teach it again and again and again. The Lord's resurrection from the dead was a divine confirmation that both the Old Testament promises of the prophets were true, that everything Christ preached was true, and that it will all eventually come to pass. Now, one theologian said this, and I really liked it. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead was a giant confirmation, seal of approval, that everything he did and said was truth. He could have said anything he wanted to and developed any kind of following, even a cult following. And if he wasn't true, when he died, he'd just be dead and his followers would be dispersed. But the fact that God raised him from the dead was God saying, everything my son just said is true. Watch me prove it for you. I mean, you could say that the resurrection was the ultimate confirmation of the word preached. Signs following. He confirmed the ministry of Jesus by raising him from the dead. And so it gave the, the disciples and the apostles great boldness. We have followed this man for three and a half years. They killed him, but he came back. And you, can you imagine how that would empower you to be even more bold? If you've got to think, this is just a few weeks after the resurrection of Christ. This is all they're talking about. He told us for years he'd raise us from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. He will raise you from the dead. You could feel the boldness and the, the tenacity and, and the... Uh, the audacity, the fearlessness in the face of religion to the very folks that had just killed Christ. He preached this resurrection. If you kill me, maybe I'll be raised up in three days too. They didn't know. Because of his resurrection, the early church could preach the coming resurrection with great confidence and boldness. And I'm telling you, there's a great boldness to be had in this doctrine. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. But now is Christ risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also the resurrection of the dead. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. So Jesus is both the pattern, but he's the first fruits. And it's interesting, Paul, by the Holy Spirit, uses the term first fruits because that's a term of harvest. The first fruits, you sow a seed or you sow a field, and the first fruits are the early part of the harvest that comes in. If you've ever done any gardening, there's always one plant that produces tomatoes a little bit earlier, or there's always one or two tomatoes on every plant that's a little early, and there's always a head of cabbage that comes up a little early. That's the first fruits, and under the Old Testament, you would harvest that and present it to God in faith that the rest of the harvest would come as well. So Christ is the first to be harvested. He's the first to, be, to come up out of the grave. His body was sown as a seed into the grave, and he's the first to be resurrected. And now, as you study 1 Corinthians 15, and we will more next Sunday, that's what Paul says exactly about our bodies, that it's a seed. It's a bare grain. You don't sow uh, what you're going to get. You sow what you have in anticipation of what you're going to get. So our body is sown a bare grain, a bare kernel, and what comes up is infinitely better than what we put into the ground. So Jesus Christ's body was sown as a seed. His resurrection was the first fruits of what I, I now dub the resurrection harvest. Because when Christ comes back, you have a harvest all at once. All these bodies coming up out of the ground, just like fruit coming up out of the ground. The fruit of the cross of Calvary. 
Because we've already covered the resurrection of the dead is the completion of our salvation. Salvation is a three-step process. Born again in the spirit, saved through your soul and discipleship, then the salvation of your body at Christ's coming. Spirit, soul, and body, and it's in stages. In fact, when the Bible talks about the hope of his calling or the hope of his glory, the hope of his coming, that's a hope for your body. Many times when we look at hope, we often automatically just assume heaven, but you have to rightly divide the context. Many times the hope is the hope of your body being redeemed and being given a new body. Now, we don't think about that in this day and age, that this was something that was very prevalent to the Jews' mindset and the early believers, that they couldn't wait for their bodies to be saved. But this runs through mankind, and it manifests through rejuvenation techniques, facelifts. We want to transplant our soul into a computer so we can download it to another body one day. This is the same desire in people doing it apart from God. So it's still in mankind. We just want to try to do it apart from God. We want to live forever and repair, replace every bone in my body and then synthetic tissue and give me a, a robotic heart and maybe I can live forever. No, that's the same desire. We die in hope that he will give us a new body in the last day. Amen. Christ's resurrection is the demonstration and foretaste of what God will do for us on the last day at his coming. His resurrection from the dead set the precedent for what we can expect Christ's victory over hell and the grave guarantees us our resurrection from the dead. Jesus was the first fruits of the coming resurrection harvest. We will be the fullness of the resurrection harvest. Can you imagine uh, billions of people in Christ coming up a harvest overnight, a harvest in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye? It'll be uh, quite wonderful. Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This is another interesting term. Let me pause there. When you study scripture and you study doctrine, you see that the, 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 the scripture authors by the Holy Spirit, they refer to single events, single doctrines with multiple perspectives and multiple terms to help us understand. Previously, we see it's a harvest. The resurrection is a harvest. He's the first fruits. Here it says he's the firstborn. That has to do with birth. So we go from agriculture to biology or to family. Jesus was the first to be resurrected from the dead into a glorified body. Others have been resurrected from the dead but retain their mortal body. So the resurrection of the dead is different from resurrection because when you raise someone from the dead, you talk about them being resurrected from the dead, but they still have the same body. Lazarus was resurrected, but it was with the same body. Um, uh, Elijah, Elijah raised the boy from the dead, but it was the same body. Jesus raised three people from the dead, but it was the same body. Paul raised a man from the dead after a long preaching uh, night, but it was the same body. This is different. Jesus was raised from the dead and given a different body, will be raised from the dead and be given a different body. Peculiar is Paul's choice of the word firstborn in describing Christ's resurrection. It parallels John's description of salvation as being born again. So Jesus gets a new body, it's firstborn. When we receive salvation, we're born again. So both salvation and the resurrection are seen as a type of birth or new birth, a new spirit and a new body. Now what would be worth working out is what in the world does, happens to your soul? Because our soul is still our responsibility, it's still our stewardship, it's still our work in progress. 
So I don't have answers for this, but I'm just thinking now. So we die. We take our soul to heaven with us. It's our mind, our will, and our emotions. What happens to the hurt, the unforgiveness, the bitterness, the bad memories, the, 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 the dirty thoughts that we haven't purged yet? That can't go to heaven. Where does the transformation take place? Can we find scripture to back that up? I, these are questions I don't have. One theological solution is to stick passionately to the fact that soul and spirit are the same, which I vehemently reject. But then this does present a new problem. Your spirit's born again. It's new. It's a brand new creature in Christ, sealed with the Holy Ghost, waiting for the day of redemption, speaking of your body. But the soul is a work in progress. Even the day you die, there'll be things you have sinned in your soul that are not resolved, and yet it all goes to heaven. I don't have an answer for you, but it's worth studying. And it's definitely a lot more challenging than for me to lie to you and tell you how to have your best Tuesday ever. Because this will cause you to go search the scriptures and scratch at it. All right, the criticality of the resurrection doctrine. Let's look at why, important, why this is so important, why we need to study it, why we need to know about it, why we should teach it, why we should teach it to our kids. And we're going to look at these scriptures that we're familiar with and realize, oh, I didn't realize that's what that was talking about. As previously stated, modern believers don't realize how central to the Christian faith the resurrection of the dead really is. So let's consider these following New Testament scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? So right off the bat, Paul says, don't you dare start saying there is no resurrection of the dead. Because even in the current church of Corinth, tongue talkers were evidently saying there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching vain and your faith is also vain. So here's the problem. Apparently, believing in no resurrection instantly undermines your entire Christian faith. So to believe in the resurrection of Christ demands that we believe in our resurrection. And not coming back in the same body, but coming back in a glorified body, which we'll talk about in the next lesson. Paul's rebuke of the Corinthian doubters further establishes the validity of our coming resurrection. Very simply put, if there be no resurrection from the dead, then our entire faith is in vain. And again, I say, what's so hard to believe that the God who made everything can give you a new body? What's so hard to believe that? And as the one theologian pointed out, the Bible is not contented with the bodiless eternity. If God gave you a body to begin with, it's because it pleased him. And he just changes his mind because sin made things like a, a good workman, if his house burns down, he doesn't get discouraged. He rebuilds it. If, if something breaks down, if, if a committed craftsman does not give up, he restarts. And if Adam and Eve was the perfect will of God and the devil undealt with, perverted this whole thing, why would God start from scratch? He's just going to begin again with the same blueprint, new bodies. We still get heaven and earth. And maybe we'll cover that too. We don't spend eternity in heaven. We, after the millennial reign, we have a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because that's where we're going to live. And we won't be repopulating it because in the resurrection, we don't have babies. We don't get married. So I'm thinking if I'm single, I need to get my act together so I can go ahead and get married and enjoy what marriage is now. Because some folks will never get married because they just can't get their act together. So don't worry, you won't miss it in the resurrection. You're just going to miss it till you see the resurrection. So, uh, yeah, let's enjoy marriage now. 
quit being jerks to each other. Actually, well, Mr. Luke, I, I, could, I could amend the, um, the meme. He said he saw a meme that said, if you had friends that talked to you the way to talk you, they, if you had friends that talked to you the way you talk to your children, would you still be friends? But I'd also say, if you have friends that talk to you the way you talk to your spouse, would you still have a spouse or would you still be friends? So let's, uh, let's get our marriage right. It's a gift from God and it's a tremendous blessing, but it takes two to be stupid. It takes two to tango. The Bible says only by pride comes strife. So when you fight, you're both guilty. Amen. All right, let's move on. Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. Therefore, leaving the principles, the word of the beginning of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation. Here's what he's about to list, the foundation of the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Six of them. We've taught this a lot. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Those are the six principal, critical, foundational doctrines of Christ. I've taught two series on those in the 11 years I've pastored you, so you should know them. If these are the principal doctrines, don't you worry so much about healing or prosperity. That's not listed in the principal doctrines. These are our foundational pillars. Healing's good, prosperity's good, getting married's great, but you should probably know these doctrines like the back of your hand. This is the word of the beginning, and if you don't know these, where do you begin? The resurrection of the dead is one of the six principal doctrines of Christ. It is part of the word of the beginning for us as Christians or as a Christian. Truly, the resurrection of the dead is not uh, a doctrine that is up for debate. We have to be very careful that we don't fall into this pit that there is no resurrection. How many of the principal doctrines of Christ can one deny before they can no longer be counted a believer? Right now we're dealing with folks that they, they deny eternal judgment, they deny the resurrection of the dead, they deny repentance from dead works. So I'm not really sure how you say you have faith toward God because you can't have faith toward God till you first repent from dead works. And once you have a faith toward God, it automatically falls into the lap of doctrine of baptisms because you get baptized in the body of Christ and you have to fall into the believer's baptism. Then you have the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And then you got, once you're baptized in the Holy Ghost, you can't help but lay hands on people everywhere you go. And once you lay hands on people, that's resurrection power. I mean, it just, can you see the natural order of this thing? And yet, ding-dong Christians pick and choose how they live for God. And then, of course, after the resurrection of the dead is eternal judgment. And it all begins with repentance from dead works. So if you don't repent, you're going to hell. Pretty, it's a bridge over troubled water. Don't repent. You just do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Just go straight to hell because that's where you're going anyway. And you're going to live in hell till you repent. New Testament witness. And there's a lot of verses here, and I purposely pulled almost every one of them. And any verses we don't have here overflow into the next lesson. I think I've covered almost every scripture I could find in the Bible concerning the resurrection of the dead. And this, so far, we've already looked at a lot of them. As a doctrine, the resurrection of the dead is further established in the New Testament with even greater details and insight being provided. It was a critical part of both Christ's and Paul's doctrine. And this is why we need to know something. I... We've been led by God, obviously, to get to this subject, but I do feel like I have to repent because in 11 years of pastoring, I've never covered this. I've taught it. I'm not taught it. I've preached it maybe at a funeral. 
I've preached it maybe briefly in covering the foundational principles of the doctrine of Christ, but I would, I would have to say if we quiz most of you on this doctrine, you would fail a test I gave you because you just don't know it. So this is why we have to cover it. And that's why I'm teaching it so you can be up to speed on this hope that we have. This was so critical to the early church. This is one of the reasons they could endure martyrdom. They feared nothing. Uh, we fear, we're so obsessed with our own mortality. We're obsessed over dieting because we're insecure because we eat too much. We're obsessed over car accidents. We're obsessed over this, that, and the other. We, we are the fulfillment of Hebrews. We're terrified of death. Therefore, we can't even enjoy life. The early Christians, they feared nothing, and so every moment was rich to them. When you fear everything, every moment is hell to you. And if you had truly this hope of the resurrection, you wouldn't have a devil-may-care attitude. You'd have this very steward-minded, I'm going to enjoy everything, and I'm not going to fear anything, because even if I do die, there's a resurrection coming. Jesus Christ was manifest to deliver those who all their life were afraid of death. Amen. I think I gave you the quote, I'll probably have it in the next lesson, where there were two men about to be martyred. One was blind, one was lame. They were going to be burned at the stake. And the one brother said to the other, steal yourselves, brother. Soon this fire will, will heal us. One was blind, one was lame. They're about to be burned for their faith at the stake. They hold, steal yourself. Resolve your faith because soon this fire will heal us. No fear. Better bodies. Amen. All right, Luke 14, 14, Jesus teaching, he said, he talked about having a feast, don't invite the rich people, invite the poor people, and you'll be blessed, for they cannot recompense you, but you shall be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. So even in passing and teaching on opening your home and hospitality, that lent itself to teaching on the resurrection, not even his, ours. So even in teaching them, don't be like the Pharisees who have these great feasts and invite all the rich, fancy people. He said, when you have a feast, invite the poor people, invite the needy people. They can't recompense you. They can't repay you. You'll get nothing out of it now. But in the resurrection of the just, you'll be recompensed. I think that's fascinating that in a general teaching on one hand, it automatically lends itself to a teaching on the resurrection that there is a recompense of rewards coming for us, not even when we see Jesus face to face, but at the resurrection. We have stages of rewards. We have rewards now because it benefits us to serve God. We have benefits when we go, when we die and go see the Lord face to face before the resurrection, before the rapture. And then apparently at the resurrection, we get a recompense as well. We'll cover that a little bit more next week because the Bible says there are different calibers of resurrections. The resurrections are like the stars of the heaven, which means some are brighter than others. Uh, thank God everybody who gets resurrected gets resurrected, but some will be dim. Some will be twinkle, twinkle, little star. Others might be something on a greater magnitude and order. We ought to aim for a better resurrection. In fact, one of the verses we look at in Hebrews here, it says some denied deliverance that they might receive a better resurrection. So it paints to me the picture because the story in Hebrews is about martyrdom. They refused to deny Christ so they could have a better resurrection. So if there's better resurrections, there's lesser resurrections. And it all seems to be based on how we walk with God today. This ought to be a great motivator to reject and divorce laziness and excuses and fear because life is short. Pastor Darren used to always say eternity's longer and it's coming really quick. 
It is coming really, really quick. There are some rewards we won't see until the resurrection of the just. John 5, 21, For just as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Just general teaching and passing. The Lord's talking about both the Father raising up people and the Son raising up people. Jesus stated very clearly that uh, God the Father raises the dead and gives them life. John eleven twenty four. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again, speaking of Lazarus, he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, they've gone to the tomb of Lazarus, and Jesus says, uh, Fear not, only believe, uh, he'll live again. Your brother Lazarus will live again. And Martha says, I know he will in the last day. Well, she doesn't believe that Jesus is about to raise him from the dead right then. She's instantly going to her doctrinal training on the resurrection of the last day. Where'd she get that doctrinal training? From Jesus. He's ingrained it to her so much. When, he, when she's weeping, she's still thinking about the resurrection of the last day and about to miss the miracle the Lord does. But I want you to see, how did Martha have such an established doctrine of the resurrection of the last day except that Jesus taught it everywhere he went and everybody around him heard it and understood it? At the death of Lazarus, Martha, one of the Lord's most stalwart disciples, demonstrates both the knowledge and confidence in the doctrine of, of the resurrection of the dead. She learned this doctrine from Jesus Christ. And so we want to make sure we have that doctrine. Uh, our eighth lesson is going to be about mourning for those that die. And we're going to remind you over and over again that you've only sown their body. And actually, Corinthians says, don't mourn. Not like those who have no hope. You're going to see them again. And you'll probably be happier to see them because they'll be happier themselves and they'll be prettier. Amen. John 5, 28, 29. Marvel not at this, at the impotent man the Lord just healed. For the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now notice there is a voice that will go forth that will cause two resurrections and everyone in the grave. Now the grave isn't a cemetery. The grave is an eternal place. Everyone in the grave, that means everybody that's ever died, wicked and righteous, a voice will go forth, and all those that hear, all those in the grave will hear, and they'll all come forth. And he begins to speak of two resurrections. Now, the, the confusing part may be, and we cover it more in next lesson, there's a thousand years difference between the first resurrection and the second resurrection. And we'll prove that next week. Anything I teach you, we'll always prove it with 20 scriptures, if there's 20 to be found on it. But this is also kind of, you see exactly what the Lord did at Lazarus' grave. He stood in front of that graveyard, and he cried a voice, and that voice obeyed him and came forth. So it was both a foretype and prophecy of the resurrection. But in this resurrection, a voice calls, and it doesn't name anybody in specific or particular. It just says, get up. And even the wicked damned obey, and they get up. In building upon Daniel's revelation of a resurrection for the righteous and the wicked, Jesus reaffirmed that everyone in the graves will hear and come forth. This passage assigns names to the two resurrections, the resurrection of life, which is also the resurrection of the just, and the resurrection of damnation. So we have two resurrections now coming for us. Jesus said, They that have done good unto the resurrection of life. But those that have done evil 
unto the resurrection of damnation. So we have this doctrine. There's two resurrections. We'll see next week, a thousand years apart. And I'm, I'm sticking with my guns. I'm pretty convinced they both have to have bodies. If the resurrection of the righteous has a glorified body, then I, I'm really leaning towards this. So I've never seen anybody say it. I was just going through all my Bible prophecy stuff again this week, reading after all the great authors. Nobody touches on the fact of whether or not the wicked receive an eternal body to be suffered and tormented in, which I believe they have to. It just makes sense. If the righteous get a glorified body for eternity, what are you resurrecting? Because a resurrection has to denote something was dead and it comes to life. And it always refers to a body. A spirit is a spirit. It's eternal. It doesn't ever die. It just transitions from place to place. So we'll look at that more next week. Acts 23, 6. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, he's in trouble again. Paul's always in trouble somewhere in the book of Acts. And he's always arguing and poking somebody in the eye with a sharp stick. And the other Pharisees, he said, one part of this crowd that was wanting to mob him were Sadducees, and the other part were Pharisees. He knows how to play these guys. He knows what doctrine will cause a stink bomb. He cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And instantly there's a division. If you go on to read the story, the Pharisees say, we see no problem with this man. And they walk away. <laughs> he, he believes like we do. And they left the problem. The Sadducees got even more mad because they don't hold to a resurrection. But look at this. He says, of the hope and resurrection. You need to be able to rightly divide as you move through the epistles when it talks about the hope of our calling or the hope of our future. Christ in us, the hope of glory. The ho Christ in us, that's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. It quickens our mortal flesh. That's all talking about a resurrected body. Many times when it talks about the New Testament hope, it is talking about the hope for our redeemed bodies. Of hope and the resurrection of the dead am I called into question. Paul summarized the gospel message he had preached, had been preaching by calling it the hope and resurrection of the dead. This statement immediately set the Pharisees or Sadducees and Pharisees present that day against one another. How powerful a doctrine. <laughs> and we really probably need to start teaching it more and start letting people know it's coming because it's closer now than it's ever been. And it really, there's, there's really no telling what the Lord will do by the Holy Ghost if we start talking about this more and let it be on our lips. And the sooner you lay this body down, the sooner you can get the glorified one. Not to belittle it, not to pardon the very cheap comparison, but it's like at Christmas Eve, the sooner you lay down and go to sleep, sooner you get up for Christmas morning. Tell your kids, go to bed. Christmas will get here sooner. Not that I want any of you to die faster, but you won't fear death when it comes. Amen. Acts 24, 14 through 15. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, Paul has been transitioned from one tribunal to another, after the way, that is the way, the truth, and the life, or the way, capitalized in some translations, after the way which they, the Jews, call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which were written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they, the Pharisees, themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Look at the terms again. And I have hope toward God that there shall be a resurrection. There's that term that when we talk of biblical hope, it speaks of the future resurrection. That's how much 
their bodies and the curse of their bodies was real to them. Even as Paul said in Romans, we groan within ourselves to be clothed with immortality, that we might lay off this old house. Modern America doesn't have a problem with the house they're in. That is spiritual poverty. Like when you live in a ratty trailer full of coons and possums and feces, syringes, and you don't have a problem with it, something's wrong with you. Normal people think, I need better. Jude said, hate the garment spotted by your own flesh. We ought to realize this thing we got, we don't worship this. We take care of it, so we get a couple more miles out of it, and then we hurry up and upgrade. But he also said, believing all things which were written in the law and the prophets. The hope he's talking about was based upon what the law and the prophets promised. That's how critical a thread the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead is. Paul's in trouble, and what does he do? He keeps talking about the resurrection of the dead. And he says, even the Pharisees agree with me on this one. And he says there's a resurrection both of the just and the unjust because then, as soon as he says that, he divides the tribunal. Some of you are making it, some of you aren't making it. So he's still preaching the gospel, though he's defending himself. He's putting the truth of God's coming judgment, and he's wanting them to know all of you will be resurrected one day, some of you to God, some of you to hell. And you know the Holy Ghost was given something to work with there. They went home going, what did he mean, a resurrection of the just and the unjust? What does it mean to be just? What do you have to do to become resurrected with the just? Even in his tribunal, he is still preaching the word and the gospel. When called before Felix, the Roman governor over Israel, Paul proclaimed quite emphatically and that he agreed with the Pharisees that there shall be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the wicked. He again referred to this as hope toward God. That doesn't mean you hurry up and eat yourself to death. You take care of your body so you can accomplish your race. When you are resurrected, it's a brighter resurrection. Take care of your body now so you can do everything God has called you to do. Be the best businessman, be the best businesswoman, be the best Sunday school teacher, the best mom, the best dad, the best husband, the best wife, the best missionary, the best pastor, because there is a resurrection, and we're going to be able to see on that day who really served God and who is just a dimwit. Acts 24, 20 and 21, same tribunal. Paul won't shut up about this. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they have found when I stood before the council, which we just covered in the previous two passages, other than for this one statement, which I shouted at, uh, out while standing before them. Here he says, he keeps bringing up the same statement that's getting him into trouble over and over again. For the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. The whole problem he made for himself is because of this one doctrine, and he refuses to soften his stance. He even admits, I shouted it, and I'll tell you what I said again. <laughs> Everywhere he goes, before every tribunal, every counselor, every judge, every governor, O King Agrippa, he keeps talking about the resurrection of the dead. Because this thing is critical. It's the gospel. Well, we've shallowed the gospel to get souls saved, which wasn't even accurate. We were saving spirits. But we didn't tell people that you have to walk this thing out to obtain every stage of your salvation, spirit, soul, and then body. Because if you can deny the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have had two phases of salvation and still go to hell. Revelation 20 says, happy and blessed are they that have part in the first resurrection. Not everybody's going to have part in the first resurrection.
Paul related to Governor Felix. So we had Agrippa in one place, now we got Felix. That the only reason he, Paul, was brought before the governor is because he declared, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And he started a tumult among the Pharisees and Sadducees. <laughs> 1 Corinthians six fourteen, And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his own power. Don't turn the page. Underline the word raise there. God has raised up the Lord. Resurrection, glorified body. And he will also, future tense, raise us up by his own power. So he has raised and he will raise, both talking about resurrection, okay? 2 Corinthians 4, 14. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Present. So we're still talking about resurrection. Now we're, Paul's advancing the, the process of the resurrection. Raised up or resurrected, now presented. So I have underlined that. Ephesians 5, 27, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. We never look at this verse as a resurrection of the dead verse, but it is a resurrection of the dead verse, building upon what Paul said in 2, 14, or 4, 14. He raises us up and he presents us. How does God get a glorious church? He has to transform it and then present it to himself. Because even the day the Lord shouts the trumpet, people have just gotten born again and they'll be filthy. There'll be a baby church work somewhere full of filth and sin. And so we have to, I understand how it gets preached, but hear me from, from a, as a teacher standpoint. He cannot come back for a church without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing because there's always going to be spots and wrinkles in the earth. But if he can resurrect the church and glorify it with a new body, then he can present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle, blemish, any such thing. It's a resurrection verse, and it makes perfect sense. If we understand that even if the Lord Jesus comes back next week, People have been born again all week, and they'll be filthy. They'll be struggling with homosexuality, addiction, drug abuse, uh, domestic violence. It'll be a filthy, blemish-spotted church. Is he going to leave that baby church behind? No. They're, that's where they are in their Christianity. So then how does he get a glorious church? As it says, he might present it to himself. And the word present means to go, take, and bring it to yourself. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So I, this is another stage. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's talking about the resurrection, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him, Jesus. So those that are asleep, God will bring back with Jesus Jude says the same thing. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. So what does this do? It paints this giant picture of the resurrection. At the resurrection, we shall be raised up together, presented together in our new bodies without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, then come back to earth with Jesus at the second coming of Christ to conquer, judge, and reign. In these verses, you have the full picture of the resurrection of the dead. Raised up presented in glorious bodies, and then able to turn back around and come back to earth to conquer with the Lord, to rule with a rod of iron. Because he said in the revelation to the churches at, uh, uh, at the Reve um, 
of Asia Minor, he said, those that overcome, they will rule with me with a rod of iron. I'll give them a rod of iron that they may rule with me. That's talking about the millennial reign. Only those that overcome, though. It's terrifying when he has to tell seven New Testament churches, here's the promise, if, if you overcome. Just because you're born again in your spirit and you're working on your soul doesn't mean you overcome. Those that endure to the end shall be saved. We don't have time to play patty cake or be fearful or, I don't know. This is a time to be super serious for the Lord Jesus. All right. Here, here we have the whole resurrection. We will be raised up, presented together in our new bodies. We have two verses that talk about being presented glorious. We will come back to earth. We will bring back, we'll be brought back with Jesus and we'll come with the, with the Lord and we'll be part of those 10,000s upon 10,000s of his saints. Romans 8, 10, and 11, the New Living Translation. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. I pray this verse all the time in the King James as a healing verse. Quicken our mortal flesh, Lord. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in me, lives in my wife, lives in my born-again girls. Quicken our flesh. We rebuke sickness, but it's a resurrection verse. Because if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, that spirit will quicken your mortal body. Make alive your mortal body because mortality must put on immortality. It's not a healing verse, though. I don't say you can't use it for healing. I use it for healing almost every day. But the context is actually resurrection. Because you're born again and the Holy Spirit lives within you, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, well, when you die, you'll be raised from the dead too. You'll be part of the resurrection of the just. Though this verse is often used as a promise of life, health, and healing, now the actual context of this verse relates to the resurrection of the dead. How will we be resurrected? Just like Jesus, by the power of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Philippians 3, 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Now, let me pause right there. That is not what the modern Christian says in their heart today. They don't want to know God. They don't want to know the power of his resurrection. They don't want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. They don't want to be made conformable unto his death. They want to have their best Friday ever. They want to dream. They want to live their life like it's golden. So this right here is Paul's lifestyle and example set before us. But I'd say probably 80% of the body of Christ in America that's truly born again doesn't believe any of this. Because they won't say in their heart, I want to know him. They don't want to know him. If they wanted to know him, they'd come to church more. And they definitely don't want to know fellowship of his sufferings. They just want to complain about it and post it on that useless thing called social media. Paul said, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. To me, as a scientist, it looks like a formula. A plus B plus C plus D might equal E. So what's the formula to attain the resurrection of the dead? A good, safe formula for your heart to cry out every day. Lord, I want to know you. I want to know the power of your resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of your sufferings. I want to be made conformable unto your death so that I might be able to grasp a hold of 
the resurrection of the dead. Paul longed to attain unto the coming resurrection, and so should we. And then finally, Hebrews 11.35, last verse. By faith, women received their dead raised to life again. And others, not just women, but others, were tortured. Why would you torture a believer? To get them to deny their Savior. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. How do you get delivered? Deny Christ. Not accepting deliverance that they may obtain a better resurrection. They knew that if they denied Christ, they would not be resurrected with the just. But I also believe in this as there's a martyrdom's, a martyr's resurrection, something a little brighter than, you know, the housewife that lives in middle-class America and suburban Dallas, you know, driving her Bentley car. And that's great, no, no, nothing against her, but she's not going to quite have the resurrection that someone that was burned at the cross or burned at the stake for Christ was. Amen. I think we understand that. Some of us would rather have the middle-class life in suburban Dallas than be threatened for our faith. Many Old Testament saints refused to deny the God of Israel, looking forward to the hope and promise of salvation, that salvation which promised a resurrection from the dead. And may we strive to obtain that better resurrection. Amen. I'm telling you, it's so in here, you can't even shake a stick at it without hitting it. You can't throw a rock without hitting it somewhere. So we have uh, one more lesson on the resurrection of the dead, which would by no means exhaust it, but give us a pretty good segue or pretty good lead if we wanted to study this on our own. So now when you look in the New Testament as you're reading your Bible every day like you should be as a good Christian and you start looking at hope, look a little deeper to see if it's not implying the resurrection of the dead because that seems to be the common thread over and over and over again. Amen.